We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy your song. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You're gonna tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week, we're going to be taking a look at The Empty Man, written and directed by David Pryor. Here's a clip. Hey, wait. We got to try it. Try what? Calling The Empty Man. Who's The Empty Man? If you're on a bridge and you find a bottle, you blow into it, and you think about The Empty Man. Oh, come on, Mandy. How old are you? Tell him the rest. On the first night, you hear him. And on the second night, you see him. And on the third night? Well, on the third night, he finds you. He finds you. You can hear him, can't you? Squirming his way into your thoughts. Like a disease... And his message is contagious. Right, that was a clip from 2020's The Empty Man, again, written and directed by David Pryor. Uh, my name is Patrick Murphy. Joining me, as always, is Ricky D. Hola, what's up, Patrick? And also joining us, as always, I'm going to say as always for Simon now, too, right, Simon? That's pretty, I think that's Simon Owl. <laughs> so this was Simon's pick, but Rick really wants to give us the premise of The Empty Man, because this is kind of a strange one. So just bear with us here. I know a lot of people have not seen this movie. Simon's going to delve into the history of this movie. I think he knows it better than anybody on this podcast right now, and possibly better than better than anybody other than the director, maybe. Um, but Rick, give us the give us the plot synopsis here. Okay, so this is what the movie is about, but not really about. So it follows a man named James who used to be a cop. Now he works at a retail store selling ammunition and weapons, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, like a security store. He goes in search of the missing girl of the woman who he was having an affair with. And from what we know about James, he was married and had a son. And we assume that his wife and child died in a car accident. And while he's searching for the missing girl, he discovers a bunch of teens who believe in an urban legend called the Empty Man. Of that group of kids, all but one commits suicide. And later, one of the girls ends up being murdered 
while he's still in search of the original missing girl. So it's a horror film, it's a thriller, and it's a detective story. And if you've ever watched a David Lynch movie or an, a, a Richard Kelly movie like Donnie Darko, if you like detective movies, if you like Brick by Ryan Johnson, movies like that, think, think of all of those movies, combine them, and you have The Empty Man, which is about two and a half hours long, which I think would have made a great three-episode Netflix series. But that's essentially what the plot of the movie is about. It's a detective story. That sounds about right, I guess. Yeah, it is kind of a weird detective story with a really long intro. And uh, that, that's actually kind of good. <laughs> and well, in this case, The Empty Man is James because he is a lonely man. Our first introduction to him or not our first introduction to him, one of the first scenes of him is him sitting in a Mexican restaurant celebrating his birthday by himself. They actually bring him out a birthday cake and, and sing him happy birthday. And that is how we come to learn that his wife and child did die in a horrible car accident. And he clearly has regrets. He's on medication. He's depressed. He lost everything in his life. And now he's searching for a missing girl. Yeah, he's kind of a he's a, he's got a little bit of a mysterious past, I would say. Um, this whole movie has a lot of mystery surrounding it. Simon, you were the one that brought this mysterious movie into our lives. Maybe you want to also explain a little bit about how that happened. The first thing I want to say is that if anything that Ricky or Patrick just said intrigued you, stop listening to this podcast right fucking now. Go rent the Empty Man, and then come back and listen. Uh, we're gonna not get too deep into its mysteries right away, but we're definitely going to talk about a lot of the weird stuff about this movie and you're really better off not knowing any of it. So throwing that out there as a caveat, you've been warned. Uh, so I picked this movie right after watching it. Actually, no, I picked this movie halfway through watching it because I just knew <laughs> it was something that I needed y'all to see. And uh, for a little bit of background, and I do mean a little bit of background because there is very little real official information kicking around about this movie. Uh, David Pryor has given no interviews. Uh, I don't know whether that's on purpose or just because no one is asked because the film has just had such a, such a limited, uh, such limited exposure, but uh, there's no real official narrative about what this film means or, uh, or how it came about. What I can tell you is that it's based on a comic series which only debuted in 2014. So Fox must have snapped up the rights pretty damn quickly uh, because this was filming by 2017. Uh, this is David Pryor's first, first feature as writer and director. Uh, pretty much all of his previous credits, except for a short film, uh, are all for um, making of featurettes, under, especially under David Fincher. So he spent a while on the set of Zodiac and Panic Room and uh, other Fincher thrillers, which is worth keeping in mind. That's about all the official information that I can give you. Did you read the comic from Boom Studios? I did. Really quick, my history with the movie is strange because I actually had access to the comic book before it was released, and I was supposed to review it. Couldn't review it because something popped up in my life, gave it to someone else, another writer from Salmon Sight, but I've always wanted to read it, and I actually found issue one and two. So I actually had the first two issues, but I've never read the comic. The comic is completely different. I mean, it has a few images, and like the basic concept is still there, which I'm sure that like that aspect I'm sure satisfied Fox. Um, but 
Pryor really goes in a totally different direction from the comic in terms of um, the mechanisms of this uh, malevolent force that exists in the movie. And uh, and also, I think what it represents is a lot more specific and also a lot less specific in the film. We're, we're already about to get weird. Um, Wait, before you get weird. Yeah. Please. Just to give listeners a bit of backstory as to why maybe nobody has heard of the movie or seen the movie. Yes. Now, from my understanding, this movie was filmed in 2016, 2018, 2017. The movie takes place in 2018. It wasn't released until 2020. It was made by Fox Searchlight Studios. Uh, just, I think it was just 20th Century Fox, which was then... You know, I don't know whether the film was shot before or after the merger. I mean, I'm sure it was a long... Well, it has the original anyway. logo. Yeah, Disney never bothered to remove uh, the Fox branding either from the trailer, which is awful, by the way. Um, like, uh, <laughs> apologies to whoever cut it, but it, it does not give you a sense of what that movie is like at all. Well, so, um, and the problem with the trailer is the trailer makes it look like Bye Bye Man or Slender Man, which are both terrible films. Which, I mean, to be fair, the movie is sort of like about an urban legend, but not really. We're, we're going to get to what the movie is really about soon. <laughs> That's going to be so fun. the movie was released in 2020 in certain places in the U.S., I believe like big cities like New York, L.A., et cetera, et cetera. It was released everywhere else in 2021. Digitally. Right. Because of the pandemic. And yes. because of the pandemic, it lasted in the cinema for like maybe a week. It only had about a week of marketing. I think they released one trailer, one poster, and that's about it. But like something I, I really need to make sure people understand is that, yes, it got I mean, it was supposed to come out last August, I believe, and then got delayed because of the pandemic. But even by pandemic standards, this movie was buried, buried deep. And also, this is something I found really interesting. and I'm going to mention it and then we're not going to talk about it for the rest of the show. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. I think the fact that there's so little information about the available about the film uh, at least unless there was some sort of press material that went out that I didn't see to the people who did review it that I think cr the the critics and audiences who did see it uh, early pretty much I wouldn't say universally slammed it but the reviews were not kind the reception was not friendly and uh, I think that's just because people were not prepared uh I think people rely so much on their preconceptions and like the official narratives of what movies are about, why they're made, what the themes are, you know, what the actors have done previously. And there's just, this movie is almost a completely blank slate. At least that's how it came to me. Now that you're listening to this podcast listeners, it will be a slightly less blank slate for which I'm actually a little bit sad because I kind of feel like this movie was my little secret, which I then uh, forced several friends of mine to watch. And now we all make empty man jokes and will forever. Okay, so this is where I have to quickly jump in. So the thing about this movie that I love so much is, to me, it is a true cult film. The last time I think we actually had a real true cult film was way back in, what, 2000 when Donnie Darko was released? Because of the internet, it, it makes it really hard to have a true cult film in which the movie gets released, nobody watches it, and later maybe 10 years later, five years later, two years later, one year later, it finds an audience because of word of mouth. In this case, like you said, the movie was released, but lasted about a week in the cinemas, had a VOD release. I'm not even sure if it has a DVD or a Blu-ray release, but no one saw it. So everyone 
who's watching this movie now is watching a movie because they read a review on Letterboxd and or because Simon's telling everyone to watch the movie. <laughs> I'm like literally the, I think I'm, I, I'm, I'm basically the entire street team for this movie at this point. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder if we'll talk about this later, whether or not this movie will have become a cult movie. I don't know if it has quite yet, but you're right, Rick, that it has the makings of one. And it's always hard to describe what kind of movie that will be. But it usually uh, starts with sincerity right off the bat, right? And this isn't the kind of it's the cult movie that, that's known for being bad. This is the kind of cult movie that's known for being almost impenetrable. And that makes it really easy to talk about because a lot of the time I had no idea what the hell is going on in this movie. And I'm still not sure I do have any idea what the hell is going on in this movie. You've seen it only once, right? I've seen it only once. That means I'm still sane. So I can. <laughs> so here's the thing. The first time I watched the movie, I really liked the movie. I had to watch it a second time for me to really understand what the movie's maybe about. And again, I'm going to let Simon explain because he's going to do a way better job in explaining what the oh movie's boy. really about. But here's the thing about the movie. When we talk about a, a true cult film, when you have a movie like Repo, the genetic opera being made, and it's made because the filmmakers want it to be a cult film, Mm-hmm. That's not the way it works. Yeah, like the Killer Tire movie. That's not really... Yeah, every work. Quentin Dupier movie, for sure, is an attempted cult film. That is called a genre film. It's called a B-movie, but it's not a cult film. In order to achieve cult status, you need to have a cult following, and you have to get your cult following naturally. You can't just make a movie and say this is a cult film because I want it to be. But the certain kind of movie that becomes a cult film is very much like this. And I think, first of all, it has to have something that any that general audiences can grasp onto. And I, I think, and we'll get into this more as well later, it's a very handsome movie to, to look at. It is stunningly photographed at times. I think it's beautiful. And that, I think, is going to be sort of the... That's what can at least hold any audience in there. And then the ideas, because they're so out there... That's what makes it, you know, pretty easy. This is the kind of movie that you go out and have coffee afterwards or drinks and you talk about this movie for the rest of the night. Patrick, the thing I hate about the internet is <laughs> when a movie gets released, there's so much buzz, so much talk, so much pre-hype, so many trailers, posters leading up to the release, previews, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So audiences walk into a movie and they automatically like it's not like they've made up their mind but they know that they want to be sitting in the movie theater watching a specific movie and they are influenced by people's opinions i read so and so review my friend told me to watch this he said it's amazing i don't think it's that great because my expectations were so high now i'm let down or vice versa with this movie i went in not knowing anything about the film not even watching a trailer not even seeing a poster and that's what i love about my viewing experience with the empty man but at the same time i think the movie sort of touches on this idea of how everyone's so connected and and there's this thematically like it always comes back to like a bridge like bridges are a big fucking deal in this movie as simon wrote in his brilliant article which you can go read over at tiltmagazine.net simon i think you wrote more about this movie than anyone on the planet Like all the information, all the research is all in your article, like 10,000 words about the empty man. Okay. It's closer to 4,000, but um, I mean, (laughs) to be clear, when you say research, I mean, 90% of that article is baseless speculation on my part. All I really did was watch the movie a bunch, take a lot of screenshots and uh, make a lot of shit up. Because the thing about this film is it kind of feels that The Empty Man is three or four different things or people in the movie. 
like four movies it's like three or four different movies exactly like the empty man is the original character who we see at the beginning in the in the cold open which by the way lasts 20 minutes then it becomes paul then the empty man becomes james but then the empty man is also just an urban legend but it's also an idea it's also an idea. Okay, so normally I have about two pages of notes before we start a podcast. I wrote down three lines of notes. So the first line I'm going to read to you right now. It's thought plus concentration plus time equals flesh. Explain that? Okay. Um, by the way, we're I already consider this part of the podcast to be too far in for anyone who is interested in seeing this movie. So again, I you've been warned. Um, about... 40 minutes into the movie or like i don't know half an hour into the james badgedale james badgedale by the way is the actual star of this film and we're going to get to him later um i don't know 20 30 minutes into the film proper after the title card we get a scene of james la sombra yeah the you spanish or french uh speakers out there might have a thought about that name um finds a piece of paper uh an ad i believe i forget what the paper is but on the back of it the word tulpa is written. And if you happen to be a student of Twin Peaks, you'll remember what a tulpa is. Um, and it's weird, by the way, that this movie was shot the same year that Twin Peaks aired. And they both featured the word tulpa, which I'd never heard before in my life. Uh, and that to me is sort of like that that strange little coincidence to me is so, sort of like a synecdoche for the whole film. Because I feel like, and this is the reason I think it will ultimately find its audience, and I think that audience is going to just go nuts for it. I think that in the way that Donnie Darko sort of, uh, first of all, even though it was pulling from a lot of different places, it still felt like an original vision. And second of all, Donnie Darko is quite prophetic in the way that, you know, think about Stranger Things or stuff that came down later down the pike that was like trading on 80s nostalgia. Well, I'm pretty sure Donnie Darko got there first. And also, I think there was something about its its aura, that that sort of like pre or post millennial dread uh, is all, that is all over that movie and the angst. I think to me, it is such a movie of its time. And even though this movie has been sitting on ice for three years, there's something about it coming out now that feels so spookily appropriate. Um, you were talking, Ricky, about how uh, the, the film is, is sort of about connection which is true, but it's also about alienation. And I think it's it's on some level, and I think this is supported by the film. I don't think I'm just pulling this out of my ass. Um, I, I think it's really about the modern condition and sort of how we all feel simultaneously like we're uh, like we're sharing this comp- this complex earth, but also we're these alienated subjects of modernity and we and you know we're trapped in this situation where nothing seems to mean anything. And what the film is really about actually is the 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 allure or the power of nonsense, uh, which is really a a, a a bold way, especially in the third act, to to go with your plot. The second line of notes in my notes says, "Distraction robs us of focus. Technology robs us of memory. Repetition robs us of comprehension." And I feel like that is what this movie is addressing thematically. Like the main character, the central character is lost. We know he had an affair and the night he's having an affair, his wife and his child get into a terrible car accident. So he feels this immense guilt. He's lonely. He's separated himself from the rest of the world. 
And they choose this character to be the vessel to create this empty man, which is supposed to bridge the gap between, I don't know. That's where I get confused and lost. But you mentioned Tulpa. And so from my understanding, Tulpa, the, the definition is to create something through spiritual and mental powers. In this case, are they creating the empty man? Does he exist? Well, I, I think I want to clear this up too. We have to be in total full spoilers if we're going to be able to discuss this, I feel like, Simon, because otherwise I'm going to get confused. No, no, go, go, go for it. I mean, so at this point... Again, if you're interested in this movie, you should have already stopped. Yeah, exactly. So, Rick, it's my impression that he was willed into existence. He d did not actually have a wife and child. That's somebody else's memory that was willed into his memory. He is a guy that's only been around for a very short amount of time. Yeah. yeah he his was birthday just... is his birthday. Right, exactly. So he was created by them wanting to create a vessel, knowing that their vessel... Or the guy that was like basically giving, uh, spreading out all the messages from the the empty man, which I presume is some sort of primordial alien interdimensional being thing. I don't really know. Um, <laughs> I, I think at some point, I I have no idea. Um, it uh, so yeah, he he is he's lost because he doesn't really have any. He doesn't actually have any memories. He's kind of a replicant in some ways. He's like Rachel in in Blade Runner. He doesn't really know what he is. He's just going around. He thinks he knows what he is. He thinks he's got a pretty solid solid uh, footing as, as to what life is. But he kind of starts to realize that he has no idea what's going on. Regardless, the character that they created, his character, that's what he is. He is a man who believes that he had a wife and kid who died yeah. the very night he's having an affair. And therefore, that is why he is depressed like there are close-ups of him taking medication throughout the film which i didn't notice the first time i watched it and watching it the second time i was like wait a minute is this movie also about mental health is this movie mm -hmm. also about depression is this movie also about a man taking antidepressants and he's on drugs what is real and what is not real i mean that to me is trying to trying to parse what's real and is and what is not real in this film is actually impossible it can't be done. And I think that that's sort of what I enjoy about it most is that it's uh, unlike a movie like, I don't know, The Usual Suspects, I think is one of the one of the examples I use in my in my article. That's a movie where it ends with a twist. And once you know the twist, it kind of makes rewatching the movie, at least for a little while, kind of pointless because you'll realize how much of the movie has just been there to support that twist. Um, I think. The Empty Man is different because I don't really consider it a film about a twist uh, so much as a film that is a twist, uh, if that makes any sense. It is uh, constantly fucking with you about what's real, what's not, uh, and also, like, what what did you see that actually, quote-unquote, took place? There are scenes in this movie that uh, either didn't happen or didn't happen the way they appear to have happened or people in it are acting within the context of the movie. And it's perfectly ambiguous as to which of those things that it is, I think. Yeah, I, my impression was that they were trying for a lot. Like, they were really trying to cram in a ton of things, which is why this is a two and a half hour, like, horror, thriller, psychological horror movie. Um, I'm not sure that it was perfectly crafted to have that ambiguity. I felt like a lot of stuff 
my initial sense was that stuff got left, even more stuff on the cutting room floor, that this was a very ambitious project. Uh, and when you were bringing up Richard Kelly earlier, like Donnie Darko, this reminds me somewhat also of Southland Tales. In the ambition, in the ambition, although it's not, I, I personally am not a person that can enjoy that movie. Uh, <laughs> I know that there are people who, who do, and good for them. I, I That's great. And I I, uh, I can't. I think it's an, uh, an incredible disaster, um, but not one that I can actually watch. But ambition-wise, I feel yes. like this is a very ambitious movie where they tried to throw a lot of stuff in here and uh, and thought about it a lot. But I feel like stuff got left out. So that's where I think some of the ambiguity comes from. I think they made the best of what they could getting this down to two and a half hours. <laughs> that's why at the start of the podcast, I said I kind of felt it resembled a three-episode Netflix series. Like, even in terms of, like, the way it shot, the feel, the tone, the soundtrack, the score, the cinematography, the editing, the pacing, it really felt like it was made for TV. And I, honest to God, think that had he stretched it 20, 30 minutes, especially because there is an original source material, there is a comic book. Simon, you say it's not at all like the comic. I don't know. But he could have stretched this film into a three-episode Netflix series. And I'll tell you exactly where he can cut it. So the first cut would come when the teenagers commit suicide and he discovers their bodies under the manhole. That would be the first cut. The second cut would come when he's in the woods and he sees a crowd, a herd in the, in the distance. And it looks like a scene from the Wicker Man and they're surrounding a bonfire. And then he runs away. That would be the second cut. So you, you leave those first two episodes with a cliffhanger and then you have the third and final episode. I mean, I, I, I get what you mean, and I, I think that that's actually a good way of explaining what the structure of the movie feels like. Um, but I kind of just enjoy this movie in the form that it exists because it's so strange. It's a first-time feature film. Like, this is a, his first movie, from my understanding. I'm watching the movie. I'm like, how the hell did this guy get away with making this kind of a movie in 2018 or 2017? And you talk about scale and how the movie feels like eight different movies and how it's so ambitious. Like, like there's so much in this movie. I don't know how a first time filmmaker got away with, with making a movie like this. And actually like the movie looks good. It sounds good. Like there's nothing actually wrong with the movie. Like you can't pinpoint, like maybe you can say, okay, I don't find the actor charismatic or compelling, or I'm not into the music or whatever, but it's a it's a really well-made movie, regardless, for a first-time feature. The visual style of this film and um, the set pieces we get, which there's only really two or three major set pieces. Even though this is hypothetically a horror film, it's not very violent, and there's really not a lot of action in it, or not a lot of uh, quote-unquote horror sequences. But when we do get them, they're quite aesthetically distinct from uh, from other contemporary horror films. You know, this doesn't feel like an A24 horror movie not really it doesn't feel like a blumhouse movie i mean it doesn't it, it does in parts it, it, yeah every once in a while but it definitely doesn't have like the it doesn't have like the wink nudge humor of uh of most of, of most or many contemporary horror movies of a movie like ready or not for example it doesn't feel like that at all it's much this is a much grimmer i mean it does have some humor and it has some stuff that i personally found funny even if it wasn't intended as a joke um but uh, it definitely it 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 feels like it 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 it's a it's an entity into itself, even though it does feel, uh, you know, there's certain bits and pieces that remind us of this filmmaker or that filmmaker mm -hmm. or, or this or this cultural phenomenon or another. 
Well, in your article, every movie you mentioned is a movie I thought of while watching The Empty Man. Like you mentioned Kill List and The Wicker Man. And I thought of Kill List and The Wicker Man when we had the bonfire scene with the herd. You mentioned Color Out of Space and Mandy. And I thought of Cosmic Horror, especially towards the end with the H.P. Lovecraft monster climax finale, whatever you want to call it. You mentioned David Lynch. You mentioned Richard Kelly. That is when I think of Twin Peaks. I think of Mulholland Drive. I think of Donnie Darko. I think of movies about a detective. I think of movies that don't really make much sense, at least not upon first viewing. I think of movies in which every viewer can walk out and have their own interpretation of what the movie's about and how it ends. And is it real? And is it not real? And is this person real? Is this person not real? Although I do think at the end, Patrick, you are right, that it is made clear that he is just a a creation of this cult. And he's only been around for like three days, which is when it gets like a little, little fuzzy and complicated. But like, I, I wonder, Simon, I wonder, mm-hmm. had you not told me that the movie was great or that at least that you liked it, it before I watched the film? Because, like, you kind of sold the movie like it was the shit, right? Like, you were like, <laughs> holy, you got to watch this movie. And so I went in and I was really excited. But with that said, because I was so excited, that could have, like, worked against my viewing. I always worry about that, yeah. Right, because I could have been so hyped. And I'm like, dude, this is the movie, like, for real? But I actually just loved it. And for a movie that's two and a half hours long, that is, I'm not going to say, I mean, I'm not going to use the word slow, but it's patient. It takes its time getting from one scene to the next scene. Again, did we mention that the cold open, the prologue, is 20 minutes it does a couple of smart things that keep you engaged. So I, I'm definitely more on the, the very lukewarm side of things. I could teeter either way on this movie, but I don't have strong reactions one way or the other. Uh, I watched it. I enjoyed the visuals. I thought I, I thought stuff was wonky in there. I thought it was curious how many genres he tries to sneak in because it it, it bounces around, you know, from detective movie, you know, back to it does dive into a little bit, which I'm sure is why they cut the trailer that way, into just sort of some cheesy teenage urban legend thing. It occasionally has bits from that. Um, but I think what he's very smart in doing and making the two and a half hour movie like this <laughs> very watchable is that he he sets up like almost some rules in this universe that seems to have none. And that is just the three day structure. Uh, mm-hmm. It's something you can rely on also as an audience and you can anticipate so that you know you're getting certain beats like when the thing comes and the empty man comes and visits him in his home, uh, you know, when he sees that character creaking outside the door or wherever and how it happens also in this, in the, uh, in the mountains to those kids at the beginning, he sets that up very well and gives you again, just, you need with a movie like this, something to attach yourself to, at least I do anyway, um, in order to maintain, in order to not get completely lost and spin off into space. Because that's what I kind of feel like is happening out here. Like, we're revolving around the, the planet, and all it's going to take is one little bump, and then we just go, then we're lost. We're, we're out of here. But he's hanging on, or he's given us a lifeline to sort of get us through this this narrative that is really, really bizarre. Like, I still don't know what the teddy bear was all about. 
<laughs> I really have no idea why the it was a great scene and the creepy visuals and stuff. But I, I was trying to think like, why was the teddy bear in there? Maybe Simon, you could explain the teddy bear to me. Well, I want somebody to explain the teddy bear. Wait, wait, before have... we get to the teddy bear. So when you mentioned the structure, and I totally agree with you because I was trying to think of where he can cut the movie to make the movie shorter. Because one of the big complaints is the movie's too long. And I was like, well, right away, you could just cut the prologue and you save yourself 22 minutes. But I was like, I would never cut the prologue because the prologue sets up the structure because the mm -hmm. prologue itself is also day one, day two, day three. And so day one, you hear the empty man. Day two, I think you see the empty man. And day mm -hmm. three, he finds you. Right. Which right away, that sounds like a terrible movie. And that's where like the urban oh, yeah. legend comes in. <laughs> But it's it's weird because like if you've watched Bye Bye Man and Slender Man, in my opinion, those are not good movies. They're but awful. this is a great movie, and it the the concept of having this urban legend that a bunch of teenagers believe that if you blow into a bottle, which you find in the middle of the bridge, which in itself is like the stupidest thing about the film, incredibly I, stupid. <laughs> I think it's maybe supposed to be stupid because most urban legends are then the empty man will hunt you down. But the one movie you did not mention in your article, Simon, that I could not stop thinking of, it's my favorite horror film of all time. Or maybe maybe not my favorite, but it's the movie that made me a movie buff. It's A Nightmare on Elm Street. And specifically, mm. the scene in the sauna in which it yeah. looks like someone's trying to kill the girl. And then when he cuts to a far shot, we see it's actually her. She is stabbing herself in the eye with a pair of scissors and the whole entire film i kept thinking of freddy krueger and nightmare on elm street because freddy is sort of like a, an urban legend in the movie he's a myth he comes to life in the movie and he goes around and he starts killing people and he used to be alive until you know everyone knows the story about freddy krueger but that's what i kept thinking of and how he gets his power because they bring him into existence because when they dream of him they give him the power by being afraid of him so I don't know. I just could not help but think of Wes Craven. There's so many things going on in this movie. And again, the fact that this movie has made me talk about it and think about it for 14 days now in a row since I first <laughs> saw it. To me, that's an amazing movie. You've got the itch in the brain, Ricky, and I have it too ever since I saw this fucking movie. <laughs> um, I have I have two two ways to explain, especially where this movie goes. The first is via a story that I almost included in my article, but then I decided it was too wanky. But it's not too wanky for this podcast. Um, when I was a kid, I was in theater school. And you play a lot of dumb games when you're in theater school. I don't know if any of y'all went to theater school. Yes, I, I anyway. have played a lot of those dumb games. Well, Patrick, <laughs> may, maybe you'll know this one. Um, there is a game where uh, you leave the room. All the others decide on a person, place, object, concept, whatever. You come back, you've got, uh, basically, you've got to answer, yes, you've got to ask yes or no questions to figure out what the thing is, right? Well, mm -hmm. I played through that game with a few rounds of other people leaving the room. I got the last round, I left the room, I come back, and I start asking questions. And I'm just asking questions, like, I don't know, general questions, and then very specific questions. And the spooky part is, the answer to every question that I ask them is yes. Because it turns out that that's the theme of that. Like, it's I got the trick round where every single question is answered with yes. Uh -huh. and that's sort of what the experience of watching this movie is like. It's so wide open and it's so constantly shifting and, and expanding in its universe that it kind of feels like a movie that just keeps saying yes to everything. And it eventually makes you feel a little bit nuts if you're engaged with it. 
that's the feeling that I got. Like you said, saying yes to everything. And it, like, it doesn't have enough time to get everything out that it wanted to be. Like you guys bringing up all the references you thought. I'll throw one out there that I don't know why I thought this. I thought of Dark City. I was starting, starting to think of just mm, all these movies. One. Mysterious, like overlord background. Like there's, there's something. Reality isn't what you think it is kind of thing. Well, and the other way I was going to explain the film much more simply is if, if someone put a gun to my head and explained, and, and I had to explain quickly what the genre was, I'd say that the real innovation of this movie is that it combines um, simulation theory and the theme of simulation theory with the sort of H.P. Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft cosmic horror angle. And I think what's so brilliant about that is, um, you know, we only get one scene, one scene of cosmic terror. And that's when we get that sort of H.R. Geiger looking motherfucker. Uh, coming out of it breaking out of its uh, cocoon and uh, basically uh, shoving its alien dick into James Badgedale's mouth um, <laughs> I don't really know how else to put it um, and uh, I, I loved the idea that um, there's it seems like there's multiple forces in the film that are either acting in concert or in parallel and the movie never really makes clear like is is the cult trying to uh to invoke that particular demon thing that we saw what's the precise connection between that demon and the sort of more humanoid one we see you know going into the minds of of teenagers and making them appear to commit suicide and um you know the funniest part of this movie that we haven't even talked about is the fact that not once not twice but i think actually four times a character in this movie basically stops the movie dead in its tracks to explain to you the viewer what the movie is about and yet yes. there's three of us here trying to explain it and we still fucking can't. I have no idea. And that happens <laughs> early on in the movie. Like, I think it's the first scene in which we see James jogging. And, and Amanda, that is yeah. when he meets the girl, the, the the missing girl, the daughter of his of his uh, lover. And she basically explains it to him and us, the audience. But here's the third and final sentence in my short page of notes. Pontifex, Bridges, motherfucker. Like, what is what is up with Bridges in this movie? And, like, I, I don't understand. This is where I'm all confused. Well, you know what's funny is another movie, a yet another movie, in fact, possibly the movie that has the most thematic overlap with, uh, with The Empty Man of pre-existing movies is definitely, I think, Bruce McDonald's Pontypool, which, by the way, is also about Bridges. Right, no, because because if you if you just Google Pontifex and you go to the Wikipedia page, it starts talking about a, a high priest, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, like this big, huge thing, like that dates back to ancient Rome. But I was told from someone that Pontifex just basically means bridge builder. Yeah, I mean, uh, usually it's associated with the, uh, I guess, with the Catholic Church because whatever Pontifex, Pope, whatever. Uh, but yes, I mean, bri- in, I mean, in Latin, it means bridge builder. Yeah, it means bridge builder, I guess, maybe. and I mean it's one interpretation you, of the Latin word. You've you've kind of already uh, hinted at this via my article, Ricky. But um, there are bri- once you know to start looking for bridges, they're all over this movie. There's one in the in. There's an important one in the introduction in the prologue. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the first time we see James, he is jogging across a bridge. Um, mm-hmm. The the teenagers commit suicide, I guess, under a bridge or in like the. The, mm-hmm. the antechamber of a bridge or whatever the fuck that is you find the bottle on the almost. bridge finds yeah. the bottle on the bridge there of course the big big one here is his wife and child die because the car crashes by driving off 
the bridge, which mm-hmm. changes his life. Uh, yes, if it happened. And by the way, I don't even think it's clear cut that they gave birth to him three days earlier. I think that uh, what what might be happening, and this is where you really get into the weeds with this movie. And once you've had this thought, you really truly and do have the itch in the brain. Um, I think what might be happening is James has entered. He's you know he's gotten infected, right? He's he's uh, he, he earlier in the film he did blow into it into a thing and thought about himself, the empty man. <laughs> yes, <laughs> potentially, and. Um, and you know, the day th- day three, he is resigned to his fate. He puts his wedding he puts his wedding ring back on. He starts day drinking again. Um, and actually, I don't know if the day drinking ever stopped. To be honest, <laughs> but um, I I I think when we see him, when we see the revelation that he is the he is the tulpa, which you kind of see coming at that point. Um, I think that could just be a representation of of him having slipped into this world where sense is gone. Um. And I don't know that we're meant to take it literally. You keep bringing up the word tulpa and the word tulpa gets introduced in the movie, if I'm not mistaken, via a note. And on the same note, there's also the word cathexis, which basically means a concentration of mental energy on one specific person, idea or object to an an unhealthy degree. Like this is the thing about the movie. Like if you look closely enough, if you pause the movie if you examine the frames, you will see all of these little clues that explain something about the characters or what the cult is trying to do or what James is going through, like mentally, like, like, I don't know. There's just, there's just so many clues throughout the whole entire film, but it's one of those movies where you sort of have to do the work. You have to do the legwork. You have to sort of you yourself be a detective. If you kind of want to maybe try to figure out what the movie's really about. And I think that can turn a lot of people off because a lot of times people just don't want to have to do homework when they watch a movie. They want the movie to sort of explain itself to them. And that's not what this movie is. So this is the kind of movie where you're going to maybe want to rewatch it one more time to sort of get a grasp as to what the movie is trying to say. Like, forget about what it's about. Forget about if the dude is real or not real. But just what do you feel when the movie ends? And the one thing I could not help but think about was suicide. It, it's I won't call it a dark, twisted film. I won't call it depressing, but it does feel like it touches on the topic of suicide throughout the whole entire film to the point where all of the characters who die in this movie, minus the cold open, the prologue, forget about the prologue, they all die technically of suicide, right? Like apparently the empty man kills them, but really it's they themselves who kill themselves. Even in the prologue, uh, you know what? Well, no, because in the prologue, the girl, the girl kills two of them, and then she commits suicide by, by jumping off the cliff. Yeah, um, that's the only thing about the movie that, that I find is not consistent. That's fair. Um, I mean, the I would say that the other theme of this movie, besides bridges, is obfuscation. Uh, that is to say, lowered visibility. Uh, I mean, in the in the opening sequence, we get that uh, pretty cool little scene of quote unquote, the empty man or a manifestation of the empty man or whatever the fuck you want to call it showing up to, uh, to one of the climbers in the snow, barely visible. Uh, Later, of course we get the sequence in the, um, in the sauna and later, I'm sure we're going to talk about the sequence with the human herd 
which relies so much on near complete blackness. Uh, and I think that ties in so beautifully with uh, Stephen Root. We haven't even mentioned Stephen Root, who shows up in the middle of this movie for about 10 minutes. Uh, look, if you're going to have someone do a thematic exposition dump in the middle of your movie, you might as well get Stephen Root. You need um, a great character actor. Yeah. And, and he he's is, one of the best. He is one of the best that there is. Um, and he's talking about how uh, there is no struggle, there is no loss, and there is no objective truth. Um, and I think so much of, the, of, of, of this movie, it's not so much about loss as it is about being lost, feeling lost, uh, the, the existential uh, condition of being lost. Uh, that to me is is truly what the heart of the movie is about. How, however, it is that you interpret the specifics of the plot mechanics or whatever. So this might be a stupid question, but the old man in the hospital bed is Paul, the guy from the beginning in the prologue who survives, right? Played by Aaron mm -hmm. Poole, who looks like Aaron Paul. Yes. Don't get confused. <laughs> the one thing that I did not understand that completely threw me off is there's one line of dialogue that's spoken towards the end of the movie in which the missing girl who is no longer missing because he actually finds her, um, Amanda? Yes. So Amanda says, the last time we had a vessel or an empty man or whatever you want to call it was 500 years ago. We can't wait another 500 years. We need to do this now. We needed to create you now. Create you, the new empty man. I was like, what do you mean 500 years ago? Like, we just had a prologue. It did not take place 500 years ago. So I think, uh, I, again, I've only seen the movie a few times. Um, but um, <laughs> if, I, if I can keep it, I, I believe she makes some reference to, like, they tried once before and it didn't work. And I, and or like it didn't stick or whatever. It went, it went haywire. And I believe that was a reference to, uh, uh, I believe that was a reference to Paul. I could be wrong because what she was, what she said was uh, it didn't work. Uh, it didn't work correctly because they didn't, they hadn't figured out that they needed uh, guilt, say shame, suffering as a way to get into the vessel. Uh, it's also possible that she said uh, that the last guy before Paul was 500 years. That's what I believe it is. Cause remember Paul's character is set up to be a guy that has a lot of problems and is always complaining about his problems. That's why the other characters kind of get irritated at him. That he's making it about him again. Or well, something and he, like that. And he's a, he's shown to be like a searcher of some kind. Yeah. I'm guessing that Paul's body just couldn't handle it. And there's this, there's an odd thing that never pays off to me. And I wondered about it right away at the beginning when Paul whispers to him, he's, in, he's almost in a trance. Uh, down in the cavern, and he says, "Like if you touch me, I'll die." You'll die. Make... You'll die. Or did he say you'll die? I thought you'll he said die. I'll die. But but even still, that never really pays. I don't really know what that meant because it never comes into play again. They make a very big deal out of it, right? Like whether or not he places his hand on Paul, and then I don't remember that ever coming up again. Whether or not somebody gets touched. Well, that's what I mean about it not being consistent. But that makes sense if you're saying that she's saying the character Amanda is saying that the last guy didn't work out, which is the guy who's sitting in the hospital bed, Paul. So prior to that, the guy who was in the cave. And where, where were they in China? I forget where they were. They were in Bhutan. Um, it was Bhutan, Bhutan, right. Bhutan, Africa, though. So, yeah. So that guy was from 500 years ago. So that all makes sense now. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So when he goes to the hospital and he shoots Paul in the head, he basically, he aims the bullet right in this sort of like third eye, like right in the middle of the forehead, yeah. which I guess is done on purpose. Why does he shoot him in the head? Why does he shoot him? Why does he even kill him? 
I mean, my feeling was at. The, I mean, at that point, he's been incepted or whatever, right? And I, I assume at that point, he, he, that's his way of taking taking his place, saying your your watch has ended and it's my turn now. Wouldn't want the signals to get crossed because they're both kind of receivers, right? Isn't that the whole point? They're actually it, getting this stuff from a higher from a different being, and they're just yes. transmitting the messages. They're bridges. Yeah. Say. Exactly. All right, you still haven't explained the teddy bear right before we go to break. Simon, give me their take. What the hell is up with the teddy bear? I mean, I think the, the teddy bear is an, is at that point, that's pretty late in the film where that happens, and I think yeah. that's one of your first signs that you've really crossed over into the land beyond reason. Um, and uh, I think that's they, dope, actually. It's in that cabin or whatever right before the standing herd, which we'll get to, but then they also bring it to his house. Yep. Like that teddy bear has some significance. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> All right. Uh, maybe we should take a quick break so that we can like recompose ourselves so that we know exactly what's going on. Be a little more, <laughs> be more focused for the five questions here. Um, all right. We will be back. Here is another clip from The Empty Man. It's probably just some dorks messing with us, right? Was that the last time you saw Amanda? I saw her at the mall the next day talking to Brandon. But I didn't talk to her. You okay? Wait a second. Hey, could you give me an address for Brandon? All right, that was another clip from The Empty Man. We are at the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. Um, this is going to be a weird one. I'm not sure how this is going to go. The movie doesn't really fit normal movie stuff. But uh, Simon, if you had... I, I'm not even sure there are scenes in this movie, but if you had a favorite scene... <laughs> this <movie has> scenes. <laughs> I know, I'm exaggerating a little bit here. But all right, <laughs> favorite scene, Simon, from The Empty Man. Um... I mean, it's tricky. There, there's there's scenes that do a lot for the 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 thematic grist of the movie, and there's also scenes that are just kick ass, uh, that are just like really wonderfully executed set pieces. Uh, and I'm I'm really struggling to determine which one I'd I'd rather pick. I have to say that I think um, I really did love the even though it, it was very far from the flashiest portion of the film. I did really love the Steven Root scenes uh, specifically because I think that's where the movie really opens up. It, it takes a moment and it's, and it really says, okay, you're, you're really in the thick of it now. And I think when, when Steven Root shows up to say, you have lost nothing, there is no such thing as disunity. Uh, and he starts talking about how um, you're, you're, you know, he's basically talking about capital accumulation and how you're looking to, to take up more space in the world. And he starts articulating this ethos and I think that's when the movie really starts to branch out and uh, and become a lot of different things at once. So I, I kind of want to say that, even though it's you know 
I'm sure there's other bigger obvious scenes we're about to talk about. It's the first time that a, a philosophy is articulated well. I don't think that when he sits down with the girl, and I cannot remember her name, um, the character's name, the the lost... Amanda. Um, yeah, Amanda, the missing girl. Uh, I don't think that she's particularly compelling throughout this movie. Uh, I didn't like her line readings most of the time either, but I don't think that her dialogue is great. Uh, he he articulates sort of the philosophy of this movie to me more so than she does. Um, so yeah, I, I, I liked his stuff. He's always kind of magnetic anyway. You can't help but be drawn to whatever that guy is saying. And you almost want to believe him. You could have almost joined that cult. Um... <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I, I, it's hard for me to to pick. But Rick, let's let's go with you. What's your what's your scene going to be? You might end up being the same one as me. Well, it's really hard. There's so many scenes I love. So the scene in the sauna, in which the girl grabs a pair of scissors and starts stabbing herself in the eye. Because at first it seems like someone is stabbing her, but like I said earlier on the podcast, when you cut that far shot, you realize she's stabbing herself. And that's when you realize that these people are killing themselves. That's where you bring in the comparison to Nightmare on Elm Street. And that is when I started thinking that this movie is really about suicide. But I think my favorite scene is the herd scene in which from a distance, he sees a herd, a bunch of people. There's a bonfire. They walk around the bonfire. And then you see a bonfire shoot out into outer space, which thematically links to what the movie is really about. But anyways... And then they stop, they look at him, he takes one step back, they they take one step forward. He takes one step back, they take one step forward. And he's like, nah, fuck this. And he runs, right? And it's like this little touch of comedy, like a little touch of humor. I love the way he delivers the line. It felt like it was ad-libbed, improv, on the spot. And then you have this great chase sequence. And I love the lighting. Like, that is the best shot sequence in a film. I love the cinematography. I love the soundtrack, the score in that specific scene. And that to me just sort of woke me up. And I think that scene happens roughly at the hour and a half mark. Yeah. And I think that's a payoff of course, to the opening because when the, that manifestation of the empty man is out in the snowstorm, the exact same thing happens where uh, the girl there is taking a step forward and it's backing up further into the snowstorm as she's trying to say, hello, you know, come help us. And then she realizes something's weird and starts, then she starts backing up and it starts coming forward. Uh, until it until it runs at her. So he definitely he did a good job setting that kind of stuff up and then making it pay off in this massive mob. Uh, I guess that would be the see the teddy bear scene comes right before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know I'm stuck on the teddy bear scene, but I, I really like the way that whole thing was shot. And I knew the teddy bear. I mean, it's obviously set up like you know the teddy bear is going to be moving at some point. Like the way his his uh, shot is framed when he's looking through the files. And with the teddy bear in the background kind of out of focus, like it's so obvious that in one of those cuts the teddy bear isn't going to be there but i still like when people it was still really really well executed i guess if i had to go for see i <laughs> i wasn't totally kidding when, when i was saying this movie doesn't feel like it has distinct scenes to me it kind of just flows it's more like, like a stream water. of consciousness in a way yeah yeah so it's hard for me to pick out like later on when we get to our other question i don't think i'm going to have an answer for it but um I was going to say that I, I think I do really like that cold open, though. It's 20 minutes. I'm going to call it the entire sequence, I think, is, is great. But I'll give that that uh, girl walking into the snow thing. That's my favorite, my favorite part of that. So that's a special mention. And if I had to give one more special mention, it's the ending. I actually really dig the final, say, five minutes. And the music, it's sort of like this classical orchestra piece. 
and the whole cosmic horror, the whole H.P. Lovecraft influence, the monster itself that chases him through the hallway, him finding the chair. What's up with the chair? I just... <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I just love, love that sequence. Love uh, that sequence. I have a, a, a an honorable mention of a, 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 a small scene that I was really struck by the first time I saw the film, but I, I didn't think it meant anything. I just thought it looked cool. And then on rewatch, I actually think it is metaphorically quite lovely. The scene where um, we, we get a flashback via another teenage character to the kids on the bridge. And she's looking up at the sky and she's looking at the moon and she's got her thumb up to the sky. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of doing that thing where she's alternating which eye is open and it appears to move the position of the moon. And uh, David Pryor depicts this with these this, uh, th- these quick cuts where thumb here, moon there, thumb here, moon there. It's hard to explain. It makes it's, it's left much eye, easier. right yeah, eye. Left eye, right close eye. One eye. It's like it's the parallax, right? Isn't that what it is? Yeah, you've got yeah, that's you've got the your word two. I'm for. Yeah, and it's I thought great, that was a that's a great shot. Super cool. A, it just looks cool, and B, I thought it was a great way to sort of foreshadow this theme of of perspective and losing perspective and not knowing you know l- literally l- losing uh i what is it that the that the cop says you can't indict the cosmos and the the <laughs> film constantly returns to this idea of uh of the cosmos and these things that loom over you and make you lose yourself mm-hmm. okay uh this could be the big one if there's one thing that you could change about this film, Simon, what would it be? Um, I mentioned this in my piece, and I'm, I'll say it again here. The one part of the movie that I just genuinely think does not work is um, about three quarters of the way through, James finds a videotape, and uh, we see sort of like the previous iteration of the Empty Man experiment when they you know, tried to... Uh... Oh, there we go. That explains everything. That's the video... See, by talking, you you make you make connections. Um, we're seeing the video of the previous attempt to uh, to create a tulpa, right? So we're seeing uh, we're seeing sort of things that have gone gone wrong in the history of this cult, um, which I think is actually a really cool idea. Um, but just the execution of that scene, I didn't think was was all there. And, and so in the end, okay. I just felt like it, it was kind of uh, it, it it dragged that section a little bit. Rick, what about you? The actual blowing into a bottle. Because everyone who I've spoken to about this movie, that likes this movie, that's seen this movie, and just about everyone I know who's seen this movie loves the movie, according according to at least my, my, my group of friends on face, Facebook, they all say they love the movie. They did not like the idea of the kids and teenagers blowing into a bottle, which they find in the middle of a bridge. It, it's a disservice to the movie because I think there is a more interesting way that they, they can create an urban legend. I'm not entirely sure what that can be. It doesn't bug me. It's more about trying to sell the movie to an audience. Like, hey, you should watch this movie. And then they watch the, the trailer and it's a bunch of kids blowing to a bottle and all of a sudden the boogeyman chases them. You know, it's like, it's <laughs> like, that's what I don't like about it. It's like, but, but the weird thing is, it's like, if you watch the movie, there's so many scenes in which we see characters blowing into a bottle. Like there's one specific scene in which his family, James, the main character, we see flashback of him, his son, and his wife. They're having a picnic, and the little kid is blowing into like a Pepsi bottle. 
like this random scene. So like there's all there's all of these scenes like which again you have to look closely, but you'll notice all of these characters just randomly blow into a bottle in the background, in the foreground, just minor characters, supporting players, just the main character himself, all of the kids on the bridge, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say another thing this movie is about, and again, this this only came to me on the second or third viewing, it's also about adults trying to understand youth. It's about, you know, the James spends the entire film trying to figure out what's happening to these kids, trying to figure out what, what happened to his essentially surrogate daughter. Um, and uh seemingly it's it's yet another bridge that that can't be crossed uh you know the only character the only young character who actually talks to him played by the kid from super 8 and uh the uh the kissing booth movies for some reason um the uh you know he's he's openly manipulating and lying to him every time that he talks to him uh and I, that was just another another great thing that i noticed about this film is uh was was that theme of of uh adults being befuddled and confused by youth. The thing that I would change on this is I don't believe that his relationship with Nora needs to be in there whatsoever. I would, I would cut her. I'd almost cut her entire character out. I know that she helps drive the plot a little bit at the beginning, but I don't think him being an ex cop means that he needs this extra motivation to go to, to try to hunt this stuff, you know, this girl down. Hey, don't blame the movie. Blame the cult that made up the backstory. <laughs> I know, but they spend so much time on their sort of yearning relationship that it doesn't really, I don't know. I But it never, to me, it never really pays off even in the end when they kind of reveal that he's never had that wife and all that kind of stuff. All right. MVP, Simon. Rick, do you, we're going to start with Rick this time. Rick, who's your MVP? I always pick you last, so the director and writer and i believe he's also the editor co-editor co-writer david pryor david pryor this dude needs to make more movies you know i i'm not i'm not entirely sure if he got away with making a two and a half hour long theatrical release that's a horror film because maybe they just gave up and didn't care because disney bought the company they just wanted to like get it over with put the movie out and they didn't really want to like worry about like having him cut down the movie. Like, you know what I mean? Like I wonder if the pandemic plus Disney buying the company was actually a blessing for him, even if not a lot of people saw his movie mm-hmm. because had that not happened, right? Maybe the company like the, what was it? 20th century Fox, whatever it's called. Yeah. Maybe 20th century Fox would have asked David Pryor to cut the movie instead of it being two and a half, two and a half hours long. It would be like, 90 minutes long it would just be a straight up slender man ripoff it would be awful nobody would watch it it would bomb but i think it's sort of like a blessing it's funny this movie does kind of feel like the wackadoo director's cut of a much more boring movie (laughs) 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 Uh, and i mean that as a compliment by the way yeah because they probably would have kept in all the like especially this thing that i wanted to cut out the relationship that would have stayed um they would have kept in all the more boring aspects the more cliched aspects um generic aspects and they would have gotten rid of a lot of the weird stuff no doubt which is really what makes this movie uh, hard to say i mean i think he's got to be the mvp because this is clearly he's the writer director of this and in this particular case when you've got something this strange it isn't that the the actors aren't really the driving force behind any of this it is definitely him and again he shot this movie so well i, I this is why i want to see more work from him Again, I'm not as as enthralled with this movie maybe as as you guys and some other people, but uh, I do really like his camera work. I think he is a good filmmaker, so I do want to see something else further from him. 
Well, his DOP has worked on a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I mean, even his just his compositions and stuff. I think where he's pointing his camera to me and how he's how he's constructing his movie is uh, I find it to be really really uh, appealing. The DOP, by the way, was the only person I could find who'd actually done an interview about this movie. <laughs> there, he did like a, a pretty a pretty sort of like standardish interview with a cinematography magazine or newsletter or something. I mean, it's gorgeous. He did a great job as well. The lighting is just, it's rich, rich images. It looks great. And uh, as I mentioned, all the scenes that, that feature some kind of, I assume mostly digital CGI uh, obfuscation, I thought actually worked really, really well. Oh, yeah. We're always talking about practical effects, but uh, this is th- this movie actually features some really, really great CGI. A lot of depth in this movie, too. A lot of stuff going on in the background. A lot of. Don't you think that this movie has better special effects than most Hollywood mainstream horror films i think it's excellent excellent Mm -hmm. i mean it helps that uh as i mentioned there's so there's really only three or four sequences that are effects heavy uh most of the rest of the stuff is just you know uh we odd scenes of dialogue or lots of you know lots of extended stillness and atmosphere it's only a few things and and uh i think i don't know another thing we don't know about this movie the budget uh whatever it was i'm guessing it wasn't a ton uh, because it's not like there's uh, any major movie stars attached. I mean, Stephen Root is the most famous person in this movie. Um, so, you know, I, whatever they had, clearly it was well deployed. They were shooting on location, though. So <laughs> that, to me, means they had at least a somewhat of a budget. Um, but yeah, not nothing nothing huge. Uh, all right. So the Howard Hawks test. This is the one that's impossible for me to answer, because, but I'm going to... I'm gonna, Throw this one over to you guys. Three great scenes, no bad ones. Does this film live up to it? I'm going to say that uh, the Howard Hawks test is uh, a fictional construct just like any other <laughs> and needs to be understood in its historical context. And how can we really know what's a great film and what isn't a great film just because Howard Hawks said so? Uh, no, just kidding. Um, the, I mean, I think the... All the scenes we've already highlighted several great scenes. Uh, I could name others. Uh, we haven't even mentioned uh, a runner-up MVP for to the the lady who I don't know who this actress is. And I I should have looked it up actually before uh, before we recorded. But I loved that bit performance by the by the the only nurse in the entire hospital. Oh, <laughs> uh, at at the end of the film, who absolutely does seem like a like that's one of the most Lynchian performances I've seen in a long time. Love the staging of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me, that was another scene where someone stops dead and explains stuff to you. And again, I just thought that was so beautifully done. Um, so that was another. I mean, easily three great scenes. I don't know if I'd go so far as to call the found footage sequence bad. So I'm gonna say. Yes, it passes. Uh, it passes your completely arbitrary construct. I think the movie has four great scenes, if not five. And when I say great scenes, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Iconics or scenes that will be iconic if this movie does indeed have a cult following and becomes like a huge hit. And you know, five, ten years from now, it's going to be one of those movies that people are just going to want to watch on a ten-year anniversary on a midnight screening in some like dingy movie theater. You know what I mean? But when you think of the the prologue and the scene that you you pinpointed earlier, Patrick, when you think of the herd and the bonfire and the finale and the scenes that Simon just mentioned, those are the kind of scenes that 
will stick out and people will remember who become big, huge fans of this movie. They will be iconic, iconic scenes of this specific film. Does the movie have bad scenes? That's the tough part. Now, I've seen this movie twice. And the reason why I hesitate, it's not because I think there's a bad scene, but it's because the movie is two and a half hours long. And I'm trying to figure out what he could have cut out. But I don't know, there's got to be some way he could cut the movie down to even maybe just two hours and 10 minutes or two hours. I think to properly answer this question, I need time away from the movie. I need about one, two, three, four, five years because usually we review older films. But it's true, Simon. We always say no, the I, no, best I know. way yeah, to review a movie is to separate yourself from the movie, give it some time and rewatch the movie in a year or two. Your, your your entire viewpoint of a movie will change even after a year because you're separated from even like the hype and the gossip and the buildup and the discourse, et cetera, et cetera. And so you'll have a completely sort of refreshing uh, viewpoint of the film. Sometimes, not always, sometimes you'll watch a movie and you'll, have to, you'll, you'll, you'll like the movie or hate the movie exactly the same way you did when you first watched it. Yeah, t- I'll give it another 10 years, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, for me, this doesn't pass the Howard Hawks test because I don't think there are any great scenes or any bad ones. And I'm saying that in all seriousness. I thought about this as I was watching it, after I was watching it, because I always sort of have that in the back of my mind uh, in a podcast. I wouldn't call any of the scenes great. And again, I, I prefaced that earlier by saying that I'm pretty lukewarm. Like I felt I had no strong emotional reaction to this movie whatsoever. Um either side so yeah for me i i i i couldn't even even though my favorite scene is probably the snow one i wouldn't call it a great scene um i it was my favorite in the movie but yeah i would say zero and zero but no bad scenes either i don't honestly think that the stuff with with nora is bad i'd just cut it i guess if i had to trim some some fat but i don't think that it's bad um but I don't think that anything's great either. I'm just kind of, I kind of just watched this movie and it, it sort of floated away from me afterwards. So as we're talking about it, I'm remembering the specifics more, but. Um, I have a question because yeah. I know it's not part of our five questions, but I need to ask before we finish the podcast. Mm-hmm. Did anyone have a problem with the performance of the main actor, James Badge Dale? No. First of all, I should say, I'm, I'm glad you asked about him because we haven't really talked about him throughout the podcast. James Badgedale is one of my favorite character actors. Uh, he is he was also, I mean, the, the only time he's ever been the lead in something I've seen was the one-hit wonder AMC series Rubicon, which I loved. Loved that show. He was so great in it. And um, I think part of the reason the movie is so disorienting when it gets to that ending where we find out that supposedly he's not, quote-unquote, a real person is that James Badgedale plays him and is directed to play him very much as a real person. Uh, mm-hmm. He he reacts to things in a believably human way, um, not in a not in a quippy way, uh, not in a uh, typical dumb horror guy horror movie guy way. He reacts to stuff very much as a person does, and he he even has kind of goofy facial expressions and scenes like when he's talking to Amanda and she's explaining this cult phenomenon and he kind of scrunches his face and is like i don't know what the fuck you're talking about um he, i i love that repeated i loved his repeated delivery of i grew up in san francisco which, <laughs> yeah. uh, which he says i believe three times in the space of about 10 minutes with some kind of like it with increasing righteousness almost like yeah 
as if that um, should suffice as an explanation for whatever he was talking yeah, which is which definitely is is your first clue of his tulpiness he yeah. doesn't feel like a movie character he feels like a real person like simon says i wouldn't be surprised if he was directed to act the way he normally is in real life and maybe just follow the script but be yourself and actually it's even i hadn't even thought about this but it's even spookier because he's the only person in the movie who seems like a real person <laughs> Like Pretty everyone much. else, everyone else seems to be s- serving a plot function or like uh, the Neil Cassidy character, as he's described, shows up halfway through the movie talking like a like a 70s beatnik for some reason. And even <laughs> even within the movie, it's acknowledged as absurd. Uh, and yet uh, James Bradsdale just keeps on behaving like a regular person, uh, increasingly agitated at these increasingly nonsensical events. I'm going to be honest with you. I was uh, distracted the entire time um, because I kept picturing him as Aaron Eckhart. I, I, that's 100% happening. Every time I was looking at him, I was thinking, I wonder if Aaron Eckhart would have played this role 20 years ago or something that's, like that. I, I could see that. I could see it. It just kept going through my head. Um, all right. So as far as the future of this movie goes, I mean, we've talked about it being a, you know, a possible cult movie. Do you think this movie can achieve that? Do you think this movie can still get, with as buried as it got, do you think it can still achieve cult status and have enough word of mouth to, to actually live on? Yes, yes, yes. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to tell you a funny story. So Simon published the article, which I think is incredible. Everyone go read it, tiltmagazine.net, The Empty Man, just search it, Google it, whatever. You wrote the article and then somebody read the article and then contacted David Pryor and told David Pryor, you need to contact these dudes. And he read the article and then he emailed me so he can get Simon's email address. So the point is, it's already happening. Word of mouth. People are talking about this movie. Things like, you know, this podcast, the YouTube video I saw, some dude, I forget who it is. He did a really good breakdown of what the movie is about. Read it. And there are now a lot of people that are watching a movie and i went on twitter when i finished watching the movie after the first viewing and i searched the empty man and all i saw was praise so it's happening it's slow but i i think there are people who are now watching a movie because people are recommending it like i said i went on facebook i'm like dudes this is like a great movie watching and what do you know all of a sudden there's people leaving messages on my facebook post saying i watch this movie it's great i love it so it's going to take a while, which is great. That's fine. I mean, I would like to think and hope that he gets another shot to make a movie. That's my mm-hmm. only concern here. But I want this movie to be a real true cult hit. I want it to take its time to find the audience. And then in a year, two years, three years, whatever, it becomes this big, huge thing. And it's like, you know, there's fan art and theories and and essays written about what the movie's really about and video essays and and all that kind of jazz i I think i think it's on its way uh i have a couple i mean i agree with all that i have a couple last things to say uh, about this movie and about some stuff you just said first of all david Pryor did email me and um it was funny because uh, i i sort of put in there as a joke uh david Pryor email me if you're reading this and then apparently he felt very strange reading that sentence directed just at him and felt like he should email me. He did. And then I, then, then I was in an awkward position because I didn't actually know what to say to him. <laughs> so uh, we ended up sort of uh, making each other laugh, which was nice. Uh, his, his email is one of the nicest things I've ever gotten from like anyone who's, re- who's, who's read a piece of mine, uh, filmmaker or not. So I just wanted to note that. Um, second of all, 
one last thing I wanted to throw out there, not because I want you guys to interpret it, but just it's another thing that I noticed on my last viewing. In the scene where we we get the establishing shots of James's security outfit that he runs, mm-hmm. we see rows of keys and we see his security certificate and we see a stack of papers. If you look very closely at that stack of papers, you have to pause the movie to see this. They're printed telegrams to Amelia Earhart. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Bermuda Triangle type situation. I don't know what that means. I Thanks, don't Simon. I needed, a, I needed another mystery out of this movie. <laughs> it is these little details that are, I, I think, are by far and away the most entertaining aspect of this movie. The little, these odd details. That's a great one. I, um, I made sure when I emailed back David Pryor, I thought about it. I, I thought about asking about Amelia Earhart. I thought about asking about a lot of stuff. And then I decided, no, I don't want to know. Or rather, yeah, to me, I don't that's want an a alien definitive reference. answer. I, I don't want <laughs> I a mean, definitive it's a... answer. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe he doesn't have one. Maybe that was thrown in there. Maybe a set decorator. Uh, I mean, talked with him on that. And they just decided to drop all these little things all over the place. Honestly, Again. by that viewing, I just assumed he threw it in just to confuse me specifically. Because I felt like the movie was talking to me. I also need a break from The Empty Man. Don't, don't you worry. <laughs> that is a bizarre thing to have. Um, yeah, I don't know that I have anything more. Is there any final note that you guys want to end on? Let David Pryor make more movies, please. Yes, I'm with you on that one. Uh, I want to see what that guy can do. Uh, all right, that should wrap it up for this week's episode. Uh, Rick, are we going to be back next week with Slacks? I mean, it's up to you guys. I've seen the movie. If you guys want to review it, Slacks, it's about killer jeans. <laughs> Should we just do it to go in a completely different direction philosophically? I have two kick-ass <laughs> new cult films, horror films, straight out of Canada. One is Slacks, one has come true. I would like to review these two movies in the next few weeks or so. So that would be my two picks, I believe. All right. So yeah, and I think I'm gonna force you guys to watch a Mel Gibson movie. Um, oh God! In, in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I haven't picked my next one yet, but I can guarantee you it's not going to be this insane because nothing <laughs> is. I'm you. I'm make. I'm going Mel Gibson insane. So Apocalypto will be my choice for the week after. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be we'll be back next week with slacks. Hold on a second. Just a reminder, you can find the podcast over at SortedCinema.com. You can uh, listen to the podcast just about everywhere from iTunes to Stitcher to Amazon to Spotify, you name it. Please leave us a review if you like the show and you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. Now, of course, the YouTube channel is just the audio. There's no video portion of the show, but whatever. It's there. It's on YouTube. It's on the website, SortedCinema.com, which will redirect you to Goombastomp.com. And that's about it. And the Twitter handle is Sorted Cinema, which is really my Twitter handle, but I usually use it just to, you know, promote the podcast. All right. That'll wrap it up. That'll really wrap it up this time. And uh, we'll be back next week. See you then.